It is good to see you today, and it is hard to believe that we have come to the last of the seven letters. Um, isn't that just proof that time flies? That's, that's crazy for me that we are seven weeks into this thing that we started the week right after Easter. That means we're, we're two months past Easter. That's crazy. Um, it, it is moving along. But we have been in this study of seven letters that Jesus wrote to his church. And uh, although they were first written a, a long time ago to seven real churches in Asia Minor, what we have found in this study is that he's still encouraging, still instructing, still correcting his church today. And of all the letters, this one might be the most intense. It might be. I mean, I, we're, we're ending with, with a letter from Jesus to the church that I would consider to be pretty intense. In fact, the way I would frame this one is as a Jesus follower, this one might tick you off. As a Jesus follower, this one, this one might leave you somewhat mad. Uh, it may leave you mad at yourself for not leveraging more of your life to follow Jesus. I'm saying for those of you who already leverage your life in certain ways, this may tick you off going, I can't believe that I, that I don't leverage my life more. Uh, it, it may make you mad at Jesus. The very fact that he calls for such a leveraging of your life. But the thing I would say is, if this does not tick you off, if this does not make you mad, then you might be the topic of the letter. Doesn't it sound fun? Let's get to work. Let's get to work. Have you ever heard of the name Warner Solomon? Warner Solomon. It is likely that most of us have not heard his name, but Warner Solomon was an artist. And he is the reason that since 1941, Jesus looks like this. That was Warner Solomon painted that portrait of Jesus. Now, I don't know what Jesus looked like before 1941, but after 1941, we all know this is what he looks like. He's a six-foot-four European dude with long, flowing, shampooed, conditioned hair, right? That's what Jesus looks like since 1941. Um, anybody ever, I mean, that picture hangs in lots of homes and churches. It is estimated some 500 million copies of that portrait hang in different places. But that's not the only picture he painted. Um, there is another one that looks like this. It is called Christ at Heart's Door. Christ at Heart's Door. I'm pretty sure that I grew up in some churches that had that hanging somewhere, in a fellowship hall, in a classroom, um, but, but I just always remember as a little kid seeing that picture along, along the way. That picture of Jesus standing at, at a door is an image from the Bible. Um, for those of you who learned it when you were young, it, it might have been from the King James because that was, that was like one of the only options uh, when, I was, when I was a kid. And so it was, behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone, at that time it said if any man, but if anyone hear my voice and open the door, 
I will come in to him. I will, I remember as a kid, sup with him, which means eat with him, and he with me. Well, those words are actually embedded in the very last of the seven letters, the letter that, that we're going to look at today. It, it is the letter to the church at a place called Laodicea. Laodicea. So one more time, let's go to the map. All right, one more time. We, the horseshoe is completed. All right, we have made our way all the way around. We are at the last stop of the ancient Roman mail route, but on this journey, it's Jesus who's writing the letters, and, and he is delivering, having them delivered to seven real churches. We have begun in Ephesus. We made our way all the way to the north, back around, and today we close with Laodicea. Here's what you need to know about Laodicea before we read the letter. Laodicea was prosperous and wealthy. Everybody all right with that? Anybody got a problem? Prosperous and wealthy. Sounds like a good place to live. And it was. A part of what made Laodicea prosperous and wealthy was the fact that it was located on a highway. A major highway between Syria and Antioch to the east and that highway ran all the way to the Aegean Sea. It would have stopped at Ephesus, which is where we started this thing. But along that route is Laodicea. And so the highway went right through town. Now, to say that today, we kind of get mixed up. But that we, we understand there were days, especially with state highways, that used to go right through town. All right? Now, when I think about people coming to even this campus this morning, I think about people going to Garden City, um, there's this nice four-lane highway, seven. And so people travel that highway coming from, from both directions, but there was a day when that wasn't there. And so I, I, I hear it from, from the folks who've been around for a long time, and they will tell me stories about when that wasn't there, and the only thing that was here was the old Highway 7 that runs right through the middle of town, and on Fridays, you just avoided it because you couldn't cross over the road. The line of cars going to the lake was so intense that you, you just literally would sit there forever, 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 and you could not cross over the highway. It's because there was a day where all highways like that went through the middle of town. When we're talking about Laodicea, that's what I want you to picture. No, there's not a bypass. There, there's no 470 or 435 loop around the city. This is a highway that goes right through town. And when the highway goes through town, the town profits from all the traffic. And so, in Laodicea, they were known for a medical center. A medical center that was most known for a, a, an eye doctor, actually. A doctor that specialized in, in terms of, of sight, and, and there was this eye salve. So this powdery stuff that they would mix up, and, and they, would, they would put it in, in, in their eyes, and it, it helped people's sight. It was something very powerful, something that, that people would, would come from all directions to be able to get. I mean, you know that if, if your sight's ever 
right? Your eyes ever get messed up, you realize, man, you, you'll go distances in order, I, I want to be able to see. It, it was also known for um, black wool. Really interesting. In the area of Laodicea, there, there were these sheep that, that produced this black, glossy wool. And so they would make garments out of this black, glossy wool, and it was the only place you could get it. And so if you're wearing one of those, everybody knew that that was from Laodicea because that's where they got the special sheep, all right? Now, I think that's really cool because I like black. I like black. I think black's where it's at. Nine out of every ten shirts that I ever own are black, okay? And the one out of ten that every once in a while I own is, uh, you want to guess what color? What? How did you know? Yeah, that's just the way it works for me. But I like black because black covers. Black covers. And so, like, it just covers better. You know, it covers all my muscles. I don't lead anybody to sin, that kind of thing. It, it, uh, it uh, covers coffee spills. and all. It just does. It, it, it covers all that stuff. So I, I would have I wanted one of those. Whatever, whatever they could make out of the black wool, that, that would be pretty cool. And then in Laodicea, there was a banking system. And it was because of the wealth of the area, there was a significant banking system. So how cool would it be to just be able to stop by the ATM? I mean, so think about it. You're traveling on the highway. You know that when you get to Laodicea, you're going to be able to stop at the ATM. You can pick up some cash. You can stop by the medical center, get, get a little salve for, for your eyes to make sure that all the dust and all the wind, you, could, you keep them healthy. And then you pick you up a, a really cool black hoodie. That'd be awesome. That's a good day. That's a good day in Laodicea. Here's my point. It was a pretty cool place. It was a happening place. Um, it would be a nice place to live. Prosperity and wealth. But do you know what often comes with prosperity and wealth? Self-sufficiency. And such was the case with Laodicea. About 60 A.D., for example, there was an earthquake in the city that really just did an enormous amount of, of damage. We would say, a, you know, they declared it a disaster. So Rome dedicated some funds to help Laodicea rebuild, and Laodicea basically said to the Roman Empire, thanks, but no thanks, we don't need your help, we can do it on our own. Self-sufficiency. Now, it's also important, before, we're going to read it in a minute, but this is just stuff you need to know before we, before we dig into this. It is also important to understand where Laodicea is located in what's called the Lycus River Valley. The Lycus River Valley. Laodicea is a part of sort of a tri-cities setup. So three cities that are fairly close together. And, and right there where the, where the Lycus River runs through, to the east is Colossae. Um, Colossae is about 10 miles away. Colossae sits at the foot of a snow-capped mountain. And so what would happen is the snow off of that mountain would melt, and it would run down the mountain, and, and it, it turns into this cold, cold rushing river, the Lycus River that would run through. Well, to the north was Hierapolis. And if you're standing at Laodicea and you're looking north, this is what you see. Now, can you, can you see the, the white 
area there. You can see the white area that spans across. That is actually this. Isn't that pretty? That's really cool. What is that? It, it, it's mineral springs. Those are the hot baths from the mineral springs. They, they flow some 300 feet over that hillside. Um, it, it's now got a new, different name. There's a different name that they give the area now, and the, the, it means cotton castle, which makes sense, right? It looks like cotton. You, got, you just got this, this beautiful white. And so tourists actually show up here all the time. This is what it looks like most of the time, and everybody's wading out through these pools. Why? It's why people go to hot springs. It's about the medical effects, right? And so, so people are attracted to that. They, they, they go there all the time. So, so here's what you got. You got Laodicea, where you got this cold water that runs from Colossae, and you've got the mineral baths that are at Hierapolis, but Laodicea has no natural water source, and so they would pipe the water into Laodicea, and in order to do that, they would use this. Those blocks are about three foot by three foot. They would hewn holes in the middle of those stones, and then they would be able to funnel the water to Laodicea. It would go to sort of a water tower system, and then from the water towers, it would be able to, to move throughout the city. Now, I'm saying, think about how long ago that was that's pretty sweet. Doesn't sound like a bad place to live. I mean, you got this whole water set up. You got the medical facilities. You, you, got, you got banking systems. You got cool black hoodies. I mean, come on. Who wouldn't want to live there? Prosperity and wealth. But this is what I want you to think about today. What if, what if material prosperity does not always lead to spiritual prosperity? What if material prosperity doesn't always lead to spiritual prosperity? In fact, what if sometimes it actually can lead in the opposite direction. What would Jesus say to this church? Revelation chapter 3, we're going to pick it up with verse 15. Here's what he says. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold. I am about to spit you out of my mouth. All right. Because of what we've already learned about where this is located, the Lycus River Valley, Colossae, Hierapolis, we got that whole picture. All right, I, I read that, and, and it makes me wonder. It makes me wonder about Laodicea in the sense of, like, when the water from Colossae flows down the Lycus River and then they pipe it to Laodicea, did, did that cold water actually get there cold? Like, by the time it got there, was it cold? And those hot mineral baths that are coming off of Hierapolis and they, and they pipe that to Laodicea, by the time that hot water got to Laodicea, like, was it actually hot? 
Yes. yes. Thank you very much. Just, just like at home, it worked. <laughs> what? What? She rings the bell, I bring whatever she wants. So, <laughs> somebody comes over to your house, and uh, I mean, one of the just hospitality things that exist are, hey, you want something to drink, right? That's how it works. Somebody comes over, you should offer them something to drink. If you don't know that, that's like hospitality 101. Somebody comes over to your house, hey, would you like something to drink? And so, hey, we got, we got, we got some tea. Um, um, maybe uh, you, like, you like hot tea? If you like some hot tea, we can, we can um, serve that up for you, All right? Make it work a little bit. Everybody knows, I mean, hot tea just can be soothing, right? I mean, uh, a nice cup of hot tea on, on the right day, um, that just works. That, that's just something nice that you can offer. Or, or um, where, I, where I come from, it, it really wasn't the, the, the hot tea growing up. Um, where, where I came from, yeah, it's, it's iced tea. It's iced tea. That's where, that's where it's at. And I mean, maybe it's because it was almost always hot. Maybe that was part of it. And so, I mean, a, a glass full of ice and then I'll drink more of that one. It was, it's just cold. It's just good, right? So you, you, you offer, hey, would, would you like some tea? You want to sit down and visit? We got, we got some tea. We got some hot tea or, 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 or you know, we got, we got iced tea. And somebody says, well, you got any you got any tepid tea? You know, like tea that's been, uh, you know, sitting out on the counter for like, you know, four, five, six hours. You got, you got any of that? Sure. Sure. Nice glass of tepid tea, right? Did I make, did, it, did your heart go a little bit? Awesome. That was my, that was my point. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. I don't want to clean that up, right? But you get, you, you know, if, you, if you've ever, like, gotten just a mouthful of tepid tea, you really want to spit it out. You, you do. It's just, you, you get the picture. So, so when Jesus says that, come on, that's not a stretch for, for us to understand. And here's what Jesus says, church. You have become lukewarm. You're not hot. You're not cold. I wish that you were one or the other, but instead you, you, are, you are just tepid. You're lukewarm. And it makes me want to just spit it out. What if, what if the greatest threat to Christianity is not actually, you know, militant atheism. 
And I know that exists. I mean, there's just people who don't believe, and, and there's just seething things that get written and said and promoted. And I, I mean, some of you have been in the classrooms of, of college professors. And I mean, but, but what if the greatest threat's not actually militant atheism? What, what if the greatest threat to Christianity is not radical Islam? Now, don't get me wrong, there's tons of, of pain, hurt. There, there's a ton of stuff that goes on all over our world um, every single day. But, but what if the greatest threat is not um, radical Islam? What if the greatest threat to Christianity is not secular media? What if the greatest threat to Christianity is not cultural relativism? I'm saying all those are issues. But I often wonder if the greatest threat to Christianity is not actually lukewarm Christianity. And how much of that applies to American Christianity. When you hear the context of Laodicea and then you think about where we live, sometimes I'm afraid that Christianity in America is sort of this picture of we're all sitting beside the pool with our feet in the water, thoroughly convinced that we're swimming. We're all sitting around the Jesus pool, got our feet dangling in the water, and we're thoroughly convinced that we're swimming. And it's the message. I told you this is intense. I told you it, 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 it could take you off. Jesus is saying, don't dabble in this. Don't dabble in this. I did not die for you to just dabble in this. I didn't, I didn't die for you to just dangle your feet in the water. I, I often say to people, you know, sometimes I feel like there, there's a lot of folks who claim to be Christians that really Christianity is more like a hobby for them. It's just a hobby. It's, it's kind of like that they do enjoy being associated with it, and they, there, there are certain times that, that this, and so it's like a hobby. But honestly, my, my deal breaks down because most people I know of spend much more time in their favorite hobby than they do actually being the church. And most people I know spend much more of their money and their resources on their favorite hobby than they do in the mission of the church. And yet, we think we're swimming. And we convince ourselves it's okay. It's really okay because it's, it's just where we are as a culture and, and, and not everybody engages as much time of their life into following Jesus. We, ju we just don't have that much time. What a good Bible study for us to walk through in the summer. If you don't have time to check out a Bible study called Biblical Priorities for like really busy people, <laughs> that might be a sign, Right? It's like, but we, we all know it's just the world we live in, man. We got to work. We got to do the stuff that we got to do. We, we just don't have that much time in that whole money thing. I mean, come on. That, that just really turns me away. I'm just telling you. It is likely you're sitting at the pool dangling your feet in the water, but convinced 
that that's swimming. Six months before Jesus' crucifixion, there was this moment he turns to the crowd who is following him. And they follow him lots of times because, I mean, he's miracles are happening. Who wouldn't want to see that kind of stuff? I mean, he's, he's doing things like taking a little bit of fish and bread, and he's feeding thousands of people. Well, who, who wouldn't want to get in on that kind of deal, right? So he feeds them, and there's miracles, and, and he follows, and there's this moment. It's about six months before the cross, and he turns, and he says, whoever wants to follow me, you got to deny yourself and take up your cross. Cross. Crosses are for killing. Crosses are for crucifixion. you got to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. This is an all-in call, and if you want to save your life, then you got to lose it. you got to lay it down. Whoever loses his life for me, Jesus says, and for the gospel will actually save it. In other words, this is what it looks like. When, when you engage with Jesus, this relationship that we have with him, you understand we didn't earn it. We don't deserve it. We haven't done a thing, really, to, to make that happen. So in this relationship with Jesus, I bring nothing. Jesus brings everything, but he demands everything. That's the call. We bring nothing. He brings everything, but he demands everything. And I'm telling you, this is not new. This is not new. It's just something that... that we really don't talk about that often, to be honest, because it's, it's pretty tough, and it makes people ticked off. But it's what Jesus said. But he, it wasn't the first time Jesus said it. If you, if you look back through the Bible, for example, there's this moment that the Israelites are, are traveling toward the promised land. And, and for generations now, they've been in Egypt. They have, they have experienced the false gods of the Egyptians. And Many of those ancestors have been indoctrinated in idol worship. And there comes this point where Joshua is now the leader. He's the guy that's going to take them over into the land. And Joshua has this come-to-Jesus meeting, right? It, 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 and it goes like this. Choose today who you're going to serve. That's what he says. Choose today. He makes the declaration for he and his family. We're going to serve the Lord, right? But on this day, you got to choose. Are you going to follow the God who loves you and who has called you out? Or are you going to follow these idols? Just get out of the lukewarm middle. Choose who you're going to serve. And then serve that one. Or what about the prophet Elijah, who comes along at a day where, where Baal worship has become the national religion? I told you that story in this series, that whole Ahab and, and, and Jezebel thing. Remember that story? He, Elijah comes along at that point, and he has this moment on Mount Carmel where he says to the people, how long will you waver between the two? How long are you going to waver between following the God who loves you and who, who, is, who has set you apart as people, or are you going to follow these idols of Baal? How long will you waver? And, and, and the text describes the picture that the people just stood there in the middle. And Jesus, in Revelation is echoing what he has been communicating for a long time. 
Get out of the middle. Get out of the middle. Isn't it interesting that Laodicea was not threatened by persecution like some of the other letters that we've read? People who were being attacked, people who they were losing their lives for following Jesus. That's not the threat here. They are not threatened by poverty, which we've also seen in other places where they were poor. They didn't, they didn't have much. We've read that in these letters. They're, they're sometimes the, the, the Christians were, being, were, were experiencing hardships from poverty. Sometimes it was, it was heresy. It was false teaching that had the, the ability to just divide them. No, none of that was the threat. What was the threat in Laodicea? You're going to love this. It was their money. You're like, oh, you're just making that up. I'm not making that up. Check it out, verse 17. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. That was their threat. They were prosperous, they were wealthy. And remember what I told you about the city itself when the, when the earthquake came and then they offered help and Laodicea said, thanks but no thanks, we got it. We got it. That same thinking has infiltrated the church. That same thinking is now among the people who are supposed to be so reliant upon God. They are supposed to be so dependent upon Jesus. He says, you say you're rich and You don't need a thing. But look at how he follows it in the last part of verse 17. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. In other words, that is just a a description of destitute. This is not like, oh, man, we're a little behind on on this and we could really use a little fine. This is is like rags, you're living in rags and you are begging for the next bite so that you can can literally breathe another day. This This is the picture of who you really are, Jesus says. Now, obviously, He's not talking physical, is he? He's not not talking physical. I mean, they they got their cool black hoodies on. So he's talking something deeper. Let's talk about wealth. Let's talk about wealth. Um, Let's talk about mine. Does that make you feel better? Let's talk about mine. Right then it just went, oh, okay. So here's how we're going to talk about mine. When, um, when Jen and I got married, um, which this year will be 30 years ago, 30 years, right? That, that's a long time. She deserves applause. She does. She does. That was like really half-hearted, but I appreciate it, all right? <laughs> Um, 30 years ago, we decided it was time to get married. Because sometimes it's just time to get married. And I tell people this all the time. I mean, we dated for like five years. Um, and I don't mean like on and off for five years. We dated for five years. We were with, with each other. So, so it was like, it's time to get married. There just comes a time when it's time to get married. It's time to get married. We get married, and both of us are still in college full time. 
full-time, both of us taking full loads of college, and both of us are working part-time jobs. Now, we both had part-time jobs at a bank, so we're college students taking full-time load, working part-time job at a bank. Obviously, the bank doesn't stay open till midnight, you understand? So you're restricted in your hours. This is just how many hours can you work between when you get out of school versus when the bank closes kind of deal. It was, a, it was really a limited amount. We lived in an apartment that was $175 a month, including utilities. Now, what does that tell you about that apartment? I promise you it was the ugliest thing you have ever seen in your life. It was ugly, wasn't it? It was ugly. The brick was ugly. Everything about it was ugly. But it was $175 with utilities because that's all we could do. And we didn't need any surprises. We need no spikes in the electric bill. You know what I'm talking about? Now, if you were to look at us at that frame in our life, you would say, look at them. They are in love. And it's a good thing because they ain't got nothing, right? They, they have nothing. They're poor college students working part-time jobs trying to pay for house, and, and, and we, we, we had, you know, vehicle. is like, so... Here's what I want to frame for you. At that time in our lives, 30 years ago, do you understand that we were among the world's affluent? And many of you don't understand that. We were affluent because we had vehicles. I know they weren't new. And no, they weren't, you know, big, you know, but they were vehicles. They got us to school and, and they got us to work. And we had vehicles, which most of the world doesn't own. Um, we were both going to where? College. An opportunity to, to go to college, an opportunity to get an, an education, which a, a lot of the world does not even have the opportunity. So that means obviously we can read, which is, which is a part of what much of the world doesn't even have the opportunity to learn. We, we had an apartment, which I know it was $175, but we had a roof over our head. And, and so when the storms came, there, there, was, there was shelter. I'm saying we were at that point richer than the majority of the world will ever be. Most of us never ever consider ourselves wealthy because the way we measure wealth is by everyone else who has more than me. And if I can look around me and see all the other people who have more than me, then I'm not wealthy. They, they are wealthy. They, they, look what they've got. I, I, we only have this. That's how we measure wealth. But if you will step back far enough to get a view of the world, then I'm saying everybody in this room is in the wealthy category. Everybody in this room is in the wealthy category. So here's the warning. Wealth and education. And I'm not, please don't hear me saying they're bad because they're not. 
I think, I think that's bluff. We're, we're going to read some of that in, in a minute. I, I'm not saying it's evil. I'm not saying it's bad. But wealth and education sometimes breeds independence from God. You see, material prosperity sometimes results in spiritual bankruptcy. Sometimes having much does not guarantee that there is much between you and God. This, this is how Moses addressed it with God's people a long time ago. Again, this is right before Joshua. They are, they are preparing to enter the promised land, and, and, and the promised land would be a place where stuff's going to grow. It, it is a place where there is going to be plenty. It is a place where there is going to be abundance. There, there will be prosperity. There will be wealth. And this is what he says in Deuteronomy chapter 8. You may say to yourself, <clears throat> my power. And the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your ancestors as it is today. In other words, Moses said, do you understand there is a tendency to forget God? There's a tendency that when you get there and when you experience the blessing and you have the wealth, you have the prosperity, you get the education, when all that gets gets blessed to you, you tend to forget that God was the one who gave it to you. And spiritual or material prosperity sometimes results in spiritual bankruptcy. Let me give you one more example. Um, What I'm about to read to you is going to seem really strange because it is not the American prayer. But this is how it reads in Proverbs chapter 30, verse 7. Two things I ask of you, Lord, do not refuse me before I die. So this is his bucket list, all right? Two things. I got two things on my bucket list before I die. Here's what I'm asking. Keep falsehood and lies far from me, and give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. So we got two things I'm asking from you. Two, keep me truthful. Because if I'm not truthful, if I have no integrity, then what, what do I really have here? So keep me from lies. Keep me from falsehood. God, keep my heart true. Help me to be a person of truth. And second, just give me enough for today. Give me enough for today. Not too much, not too little, just enough for today. And then he explains why. Verse 9, otherwise I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. In other words, will you give me just enough for today? Because if you give me too much, God, I at least in part know my own heart. And I don't want to risk having so much that I end up thinking that that's all me and I forget about you. But God also, will you give me enough for today? Because if you, if you, don't, if you don't give me enough for today, I don't trust my heart there either. I may not trust you. I may take it into my own hands and I, I may steal and dishonor you. Ooh, what a prayer. I bet most of us aren't praying that. It it is not the American prayer. So let's go back to Laodicea because, I mean, we we certainly don't want to begin to apply this to our lives, all right? So let's go back to Laodicea. That'll feel better. And, and they are people who are wealthy. They, they got 
They got money. They are people of, of material blessing. They got, they got cool black wool hoodies, right? And, and, and they got medical care, like, for their eyes. I mean, so verse 18, here's Jesus again. I counsel you to buy from me. Buy from me, what's the first thing? Gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich. I thought they were already rich. We must be talking about something different here. And what's the second thing? White clothes. That's interesting in a place that has cool black hoodies, right? White clothes to wear. I thought we, all, we already got clothes to wear, right? Must be talking about something different here. So, so, so you can cover your shameful nakedness. And what's the third thing? Salve, to put on your eyes so that you can see. Here's what Jesus says. He shows up in this town, and I, this is what is just so beautiful about how Jesus teaches, how he preaches. He connects with the stuff that's going on right where they're living, and he uses those things and able to, to, to go, look, this is what you need to understand. All that stuff is great. Medical facilities are great. ISAV is fantastic. Cool black hoodies, man. Who wouldn't want one of those, right? All that stuff is fantastic, but that stuff cannot do for you what I can do for you. That stuff cannot do for your heart. The the emptiness that that you feel, that that which needs to be filled, that only comes from me. So you got to come to me for the stuff that's really the riches that will never pass away. And you got to come to me for the clothes that you really want to wear. Not not the cool black hoodie, but, but I'm talking about righteousness. I'm talking about me forgiving you and clothing you with purity. And and I'm saying you got to come to me if you really want eyes that can see what's going on around you and what's most important. So like, if you ask most people, you know, hey, did you pray today before you started the day? I think... In a lot of instances, well, no, but I mean, I pray. I pray, but no, I, I, didn't, I didn't really pray to start the day. I mean, it's like, well, why not? And, and if you really boil that down, if you really try to get to it, and I'm, I'm getting there fast. It's like, well, like if I really thought I needed something, I, I would have started there this morning. Like, if, if I really thought I needed something from God, I, I would have, I probably would have started there and, and asked him. And, and so what it comes down to is this very similar language of what Jesus said to Laodicea. It's like, in all your wealth, you think that you need nothing. And we can't even see the issues of forgiveness that we, that we need dealt with, that we need grace for. We, we can't even see the issues of patience and where our hearts have gone, where our lives have been driven, and the lack, the, the impatience in our lives of what we won't wait for. We, we can't even see. Man, I bet these kind of people tick Jesus off, don't you think? I bet he's had enough of them. Verse 19. Those whom I love, 
those whom I love. Come on, let it settle. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. He's like, yeah, I'm coming after you. But I'm not coming after you because I hate you. I'm not coming after you because I'm tired of you. I'm coming after you because I love you. Discipline is about, this is about love. Just like every great parent understands, discipline is about love. So turn around. He says, turn around. That's what repent means. It's back to Jesus. It's, your wealth's not going to give that to you, right? The, the clothing that you wear is not going to give that to you. No amount of medical attention is going to give that to you. you. You need from me. Verse 20, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door... I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Most of the time, when you tend to hear this verse used, it is a very evangelistic uh, uh, usage of the verse. But I'm telling you to recognize the context of this verse. It is written to church people. It is written to church people who are lukewarm. And he says, I'm, I'm knocking at this door, and yet I love the next words, can you hear my voice? Can you hear my voice? In other words, I'm calling. Can you hear me? And the struggle is when you're lukewarm, you typically don't, don't hear his voice a lot. In the Eastern culture, to eat with someone was to extend friendship. It's still that way today. To, to sit down and have a meal with someone is not just like, hey, we're all hungry, so let's, let's, let's make sure we fill our stomachs. To eat with someone, to, to, to go into someone's home, it is to extend a friendship. And I'm saying, do you understand that's what Jesus is doing at the door? He's, it, this is an invitation. This is, this is, this is extending a, an opportunity for friendship. This is about re- relationship. And who's he saying it to? He is saying it to affluent, self-reliant, arrogant people. The kind of people that you tend to try to stay away from. And Jesus is saying, I love you. And in all that you have been blessed with, you do not see your need for me. I want to have dinner again. How about a glass of iced tea? You understand Jesus is not at the door because Jesus is needy. He's God. He doesn't need anything. He's at the door because he loves Come on, Jesus, this is the pattern. Jesus has always extended such love to people who don't deserve it because we're going, come on, these people were arrogant, man. They, they were so boastful. They thought they had it all, and we, we, we really shouldn't say it too loud, honestly. How could he love them? How could he love me? In the first days, the first week of Jesus' ministry, he calls some people to follow him. One of the people that he called was a guy named Matthew. Matthew was a tax collector. If you've been to church, you know 
in that day, everybody hated tax collectors because tax collecting was sort of like state-sponsored extortion. I mean, you could just take from people. You could rob from people. Everybody hates the tax collectors. Jesus says to Matthew, follow me. And then he goes to Matthew's house, and he has dinner. And we are told that Matthew invites all his friends. Well, guess who his friends are? His friends are the tax collectors. It is a house full of tax collectors. It is a house full of people that everybody else despises. It is a house full of people who are wealthy because they've taken all your money. And Jesus extends an offer of relationship. You get to the last week of Jesus' life, and there's this little short guy in the tree name was Zacchaeus, tax collector. Jesus says, follow me, and today I'm, I'm going to your house. You know the song. And on that day, Jesus ate with him. And all the people were in an uproar. It's like, Jesus has been doing this for three years. Come on, y'all, this is what he does. This is how he loves. This is how he reaches. This is what grace looks like. This is who Jesus is to Matthew. This is who Jesus is to Zacchaeus. This is who Jesus is to you. Can you hear his voice? Can you hear his invitation? He wants to eat with you. He's like, man, we, we could have had coffee this morning. We could have had coffee this morning, and that, that would have been good. Because there are some things that I just want you to know. There are some things I'd love to tell you about how I love you. There's some stuff about your life that I would love to speak into. I'd love to show you some things that are really important. I, I, I really would have loved this morning to let you know how much I'm with you in the struggle that you're going through. Coffee this morning would have been really good. How about lunch? You're like, Jeff, where do I start, man? I, th I think my heart's lukewarm. Where do I start? Lunch. Lunch. And as you hear his voice, sit down with him. Sit down with him and have the conversation. You talk to him, and you let him talk to you. And all the while, remember, this is the king of the universe who needs nothing. He's with you because he loves you. God, thank you for taking us on this journey. The journey of seven weeks that you have taught us a lot. God, there is a part of today that we acknowledge. It's struggle. It's a struggle. Because we have been blessed much when it comes to God material stuff of this world and, and and none of that is bad in itself. God, God, you have chosen to give us things to enjoy. God, God, we, we, we are a people incredibly blessed. And yet we know it, God, we know it. Some of us know it in our heart this morning. God, we can feel it now, God. It, it has not 
though in many cases brought us closer to your heart, it has led us to sometimes act independent. But here you are. Here you are. And God, these are the moments when we really see that if we were you, we, we, would, have probably, we would have probably left a long time ago. We would not still be knocking at that door. We would not still be calling, but you, you are. And so, God, I pray. I pray for your kids here today. I pray for those who will hear my voice that we will take you up on the invitation. And you're not asking us. You're not asking us to, to start with some mountain of, a, of, a, of, a, of an action, some great thing that you want us to accomplish. You want to sit down and talk. Remind us today that loving you being loved by you. It's all that matters. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.